0: Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence Welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette, and I'm so delighted to have my next guest in front of me. She is an American stylist, fashion consultant, author, magazine editor. The list of accolades go on and on. Stacey London, welcome to Claim Your Confidence. Thank you so much for having me, Lydia. It's
1: so nice to see you. I feel like being on this podcast is the only time I get to socialize with you. I know, it's so (laughs) true. I
0: feel like I see you out in New York, but it's never quite enough. It's never quite enough. So I'm really excited to delve into your life and sort of share all of these things that I've learned of you over the years, but in one episode, because I know you have so many incredible things to share. But first, a word from our sponsors. Stacey London, I want to start at the very beginning. You grew up in New York City, is that I right? I did, I grew up in Manhattan, first in Greenwich Village and then on the Upper East Side. Oh my goodness, I did Tell not. Me.
1: I did not want to move to the Upper East Side, but my mom really wanted to. It was a certain phase of her life and we left Greenwich Village. And I just remember thinking when it was really windy, you would see these ladies, these beautiful coiffed ladies like on the Upper East Side and their hair wouldn't move. And I thought that's not normal. <laughs> So I did not. I It took me a couple of years to adjust. I, I really missed the village. I remember, you know, I was born in 1969, so I grew up in the 70s there. And, it, you know, any grown-up will tell you, oh, the 70s in New York City was not exactly the best time for New York City. But I remember it being a magical bubble. I remember loving Greenwich Village and thinking it was so wild and wonderful. So I didn't really have that experience as a child.
0: I always love to hear this. And I had Jenny Fleiss, who started Rent the Runway, on yeah. this podcast right at the beginning. And I always think as a mom who's raising children in New York City, it makes me so happy to hear this because I do sometimes wonder, you know, are my kids going to know what to do with grass when they get older? Yeah. You know, <laughs> yes, I really, yeah. Is it only that they know how to operate in concrete? But then I see and meet these incredible women who've grown up in New York City, and it gives me nothing but hope. So. Oh,
1: I, I really, I can't say enough good things about it. I lived through the blackout, you know, I I mean, there, there are like really monumental things that I have been in New York City for, huge major events, that blackout of 1977 or was it 78? I don't remember now. But, you know, 9-11, COVID, all of that was in this city. This is my city. Yeah. And even though I know a lot of people were afraid and felt like they had to leave, I really felt like I couldn't. Yeah, I really felt like it was so important to be here. Yeah. no matter what that meant because I didn't know how we were going to be able to help. And I still think about the fact that we're officially over the pandemic. Yes. according to the World Health Organization. I still feel this sense of we're moving way too fast. Yeah. You know, we, go, we got <laughs> yes. out of the pandemic. We all said, oh, okay, we're gonna take it slow. We're gonna think about the things we wanna do. We're gonna be more intentional. Yeah. We are not gonna get back on the, the hamster wheel. We're not gonna get back in the rat race. And here we are, and everyone I know is running around like their pants are on fire. <laughs> totally. And It is so kind of, you know, active. And I remember thinking just the other day, we would have nothing to do during the day. Right. My, you know, my girlfriend and I would obviously we were afraid a a lot of the times to go shopping because you'd see these crazy lines Mm -hmm. and everybody started wearing masks. And it was so crazy. But one of the most joyful experiences of my life was 730 every day banging pots and pans. We had a neighbor down the street who played New York, New York, Frank Sinatra. And I have I it was like after nine eleven. It yeah. was this kind of, you know, unbelievable
0: joy of humanity that we were celebrating. And I miss that. Yeah. That I miss. Yeah. It's interesting. I have so many incredible memories from that time too. Mostly when the city was empty, sort of we moved into the fall. And I remember walking along the High Line, which if you don't live in New York City, this is an elevated railway that runs basically through Chelsea that was abandoned. And then really right when I moved to New York, 2005, I remember taking one of the first charity auctions for the High Line to raise money to open each section. Because it was opened in three sections. So I have such a love of the High Line. And we walked down the entire High Line with our children by ourselves. Mm. I mean, you cannot elbow, you can't can't elbow your way up and down the it's, High Line because anymore. In,
1: in certain places, it's very narrow, but mm-hmm. all of the landscaping, all of the, the I mean, the brilliant kind of architecture that went into rebuilding the High Line, it, it's one of the only sort of outdoor museums yeah. of its kind. And again, another thing I love about the city, another thing I love about the city is the Little Island. Same reason. Like all of these things, they don't feel, what I love about Little Island actually is that there is so much grass. Yes. And there are hills, (laughs) right? And this feeling of you're not in the city, you're actually floating on the water on this like incredible edifice. Yes. Um, There are so many things about this city to love, and there always have been. And it is hard. A lot of people who know me are like, you you were born in Manhattan? (laughs) I was like, yes, in a hospital that no longer exists. Yeah, that's how long i have been here. Right? That's how long I've been here, doctor's hospital. and. The, the the crazy thing about that is that I'm just like people look at me like I'm like a weird f- parrot, you know? They're like, I, we've never seen your species. Yeah. And I always think it's so funny because I can't imagine growing up anywhere else.
0: Okay. I love to hear all of this. So tell me who you were as a child. So you're growing up in Greenwich Village. Yes. It's the 70s in New York. A little bit gritty. probably no, not, very not dissimilar to some years that have passed exactly. in the past couple of years. Exactly. But what
1: were you like? I was a weird little kid. And part of the reason that I was such a weird little kid was that I was diagnosed at three with psoriasis. Mm -hmm. And at that time, nobody talked about it. What is psoriasis? Psoriasis Mm -hmm. is a skin disease that is autoimmune. And essentially what it means is that your skin cells produce too much skin. Mm -hmm. And instead of it being smooth, it becomes like scales, dry scales. And sometimes it's very thick. There are five different kinds and it can crack and bleed. And I did not have that at three. At three, I remember sitting on my living room floor, putting my finger behind my ear like I had an itch, and I felt these bumps, mm-hmm. like almost like I had chicken skin behind my ear. Mm-hmm. And I went to my mom, and I must have made a face because she said to me, What's wrong with you? Yeah. Which really, for whatever reason, took hold. That phrase, that question, I was like, I don't know, what is wrong with me? Yeah. So we went to the doctor and I find out I have psoriasis, which is an autoimmune disease, and that it is chronic and I am never not going to have it. And there was something about that that I think made my parents very anxious, mm-hmm. made them very nervous for me, which translated into my feeling weird, right? Yeah. And not yeah. like every other little kid. And. I think that was something that was always sort of in the back of my head. It mm-hmm. always made me feel a little bit less than mm-hmm. in situations where I found myself being kind of a people pleaser to be a good friend or anything where I wanted somebody to like me because I felt like I was working, I was already at sort of like negative two. I wasn't starting at zero. Interesting. And then when I was 11, I had strep throat 18 times in one year, if you can imagine. Oh my gosh, and, uh, was that because of the psoriasis? Well, <laughs> they're connected, but no, it's the other way around. I, For whatever reason, I got strep a lot. I was sick a lot as a kid. I had yeah. scarlet fever. I had chicken pucks that were insane. Like I had very kind of extreme sicknesses. Instead yeah. of just like your average fever, it would be 105, you know, it was crazy. So I can imagine that that could make a parent very, anxious. very, very yeah. anxious, yes. I think I think it did in yeah. a lot of ways. But at 11, essentially, I had strep throat so many times. I mean, it almost happened literally overnight where I remember wearing my favorite Angora white sweater to school. And the next morning when I woke up, I was covered from the neck down oh my gosh. in scales, but like red angry blotches, not the same kind of scales as psoriasis. So I thought I had an allergic reaction. Yeah. And so did my family and then they didn't go away and then they got bigger and then they got scaly and then we realized it was psoriasis and I was covered, scalp and neck down for whatever reason, never had it on my face, but I wore (laughs) white turtlenecks so you couldn't see the dandruff from the psoriasis and long pants, even in the summer for three years. And during that time, doctors had not seen a case like this. I was like photographed for a medical journal. I'm saying this as if it's like, I'm not, it's not a brag. It was just so serious. And nobody could figure out what it was. They thought that it had something to do with maybe an infection. Nobody ever thought to take my tonsils out at 11, which I don't understand. But I think that nobody back then knew that there was a connection between strep throat and sort of activating autoimmune diseases. So I took penicillin for three years every day, totally destroyed my gut, right? And then, yeah, it was really, it was pretty intense. And I had to cut off all my hair, which was like, you know, as down to my hips, and kids made fun of me relentlessly. And why wouldn't they? I mean, yeah. we're 11 years old. I went from having long hair to like a crew cut, so that we could put coal tar in my scalp and scrape it out with boric acid. Oh my gosh! It was not a fun time. No. And
0: kids are not kind. And Especially, like, I have a 10-year-old daughter, so I know exactly this age, and that is so. That's so tough for a young girl. Yes, at that but age. this is before. I
1: mean, I listen. <sighs> Having a 10-year-old daughter today is a minefield of different problems. I mean, now that we talk about social media, yeah. we know what depression rates are like in young children. This was a particular case, right? Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. I don't think that I would have been different towards somebody else who was suffering like this because we didn't know. People would ask me if I was contagious. Oh, you gosh, know, yeah. it was a it was a tough tough time and I used to cry every night. I used to make You know, bargains with God in my head. You can take my teeth and and just give me clear skin. I can get new teeth or I'll I'll gain a hundred pounds and anything to make it go away. Any deal
0: to make it go away. So how did it finally? resolve itself or did it?
1: Resolve? It did. Okay. It did resolve itself. It got a little bit clearer mm-hmm. when I went to high school around 14, 15, and that could have been a hormonal thing. Mm-hmm. Came back around 16 and 17. This time I wasn't so afraid. It wasn't so severe. And I was honest with my friends instead yeah. of like being so afraid to tell anybody anything. Yeah. And at 17, instead of applying to college early, I got my tonsils taken oh.
0: out <laughs> and they finally Happy did graduation. my tonsils graduation. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And I have not had psoriasis, like scale psoriasis. So on my body.
0: Amazing. Not
1: once. And there are so many more advancements today in in terms of autoimmune diseases. But it wasn't until my late 40s that I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis, which is very similar to rheumatoid arthritis. But it only happens if you
0: have psoriasis. I didn't
1: even know. I didn't even know what psoriatic arthritis was. And I knew all about psoriasis. So it It's It's just something that
0: lives in your system and it flares up over time. Yes.
1: And that to me was much more difficult. If you, in fact, look at the last two seasons of What Not to Wear, I did not know that I was sick. And you can see it. My energy, the number one symptom of psoriatic arthritis is actually fatigue, not pain. Oh, wow. And so I was experiencing pain, but I was so tired. And then one day I could fit into a shoe and the next day I would be like blown up and I couldn't fit
0: into it. So if we go back to high school, so you've gone through all of this in high school. What did you learn confidence-wise during that, having gone through such intense times when you were younger and then coming back into it and out of it in high school? Was that, were you building confidence at that point or were you just feeling beaten down? I think I
1: was feeling really beaten down. I was a
0: little bit of a party kid in ninth and
1: 10th grade, you know, and then my dad Good old dad. He was the founding dean of Gallatin oh. at NYU. <laughs> so he's like, enough and of this. And he was like, enough <laughs> of this. Uh, he was like, if you don't get your shit together, I am going to make you live at home and go to NYU, which for me was not the excitement that it would be for most children. Yes. Because I wanted out. have already been here. I wanted to be away from my parents. <laughs> so I was like, OK, whatever happens now. I have got to do better in school mm-hmm. and I've got to figure this out. And I, you know, put my nose to the grindstone, got straight A's um, junior and senior year, went to Vassar. Mm-hmm. But, but what was that like, leaving all of this behind? Oh, it was, well, it was, like it was wonderful. Skin. It was like shedding skin, yeah. except that so many people from New York went to Vassar. Oh, yeah. That it was like, <laughs> oh, I already know 20% of the, the student body. But for me, the bigger issue was that, one, proving to myself that I'm not stupid was like a big thing, right? Yeah. Because like, I think that we pile on when we have deep insecurity about anything. Mine was physical insecurity, Mm -hmm. but that made me feel like nothing about me was good enough, right? Not compared to everyone around me Mm -hmm. because my differences were so obvious. So this one idea that I could apply my intellect and actually really see results made me feel a lot more confident. But it was around 16, right, when I had that sort of second big bout with psoriasis that I started to get really interested in fashion, That was sort of my escape. That was my fantasy. I was like, oh, everybody's so beautiful. I just want to be like that. And I want to be, I want to know about fashion if fashion editors know about shows six months before
0: we get to see them, right? I mean, this is back in the 80s. And so was and that fashion magazines or is this magazines, just- Okay, because I was going to say, one thing I've always loved about New York is you can tell what trend is coming up because you start seeing all the younger women. And, you know, when I first moved here in my 20s, it was like, I'd look around and be like, oh, you know, I guess, and now they're back again, spandex shorts are in. Yeah, like, who knew? I mean, I don't know I mean, why they're back please, again. I feel like I want to pull everyone aside and be like, listen, no. I know you like it. <laughs> I trust me, I looked like you when I was 21, and then those pictures have never looked good. And they never don't look good. But wear it's, also, them. it's just also it's lazy. Let's yeah. just be honest. <laughs> okay, you clothes. can button the pants. And um,
1: and and the other thing is, I always think if you did the trend
0: the first time around, you never need to do it the second time <laughs> so, around. Although that's I really just do love my boot cut jeans. I've just brought those back after oh, 20 are years. Are they low rise? <laughs> they are
1: ah, because that's coming back. All right. I Thank God have you have it. the body to do it. Like that's no, all I I'm going to say that. about that. But but um, I really I think that I started to have this. vision of what my life could be like if I started to excel, if I actually listened to my father and got into a good college and, Mm. you know, really sort of sucked all the marrow out of the bones and really did something with it. And so I remember I, I got into Vassar and my father said to me, remember, right, he created Gallatin, and anybody who knows Gallatin at NYU, there's only one course, and then you get to choose your entire curriculum from every other school Mm -hmm. at NYU. So he was a big believer in independent thinking, and he was a big believer in independent study. Mm -hmm. So when I got to Vassar, I started taking all these classes, and I realized very quickly, I did not want to be pigeonholed into a major, because my dad was, he gave me great advice. He said, if you're going to undergrad, don't think about graduate school yet, right? Undergrad is meant to teach you how to speak, how to write, and how to think critically. Mm. I don't care what you study, but if you leave with those three skills, you're going to be good to go no matter what you do. Amazing. That's great advice. And it really was. And so I made my own major. I made a huge case for being an independent major, German philosophy, psychology, and literature at the <laughs> turn of the 20th century with an emphasis on Nietzsche and Heidegger.
0: Literally something you can use every day, every day of your life. You just pull, pull just sort pull, of random snippets out from well, that. Well, the funny
1: thing is, even in high school, I was preoccupied with this concept of self. Mm. And so Hermann Hesse, Damien, Damien, was a really like important book to me because it really was about this kind of concept of self. Mm. And then when I got older and I started looking at this in college, I was still interested. The entire thesis was really about how the concept of self is created in writing, what works of philosophy and psychology forms certain works of literature Mm. around how you build character. So I've always been involved with identity Mm. or interested in identity in some way. But I knew that I wanted fashion yeah. and I knew that that's what I was going to do. I was determined. So, you know, I was very, very lucky. I got this wonderful education from my parents. I mean, I'm so grateful to them. But, you know, I worked my ass off. I got general honors, departmental honors, Phi Beta Kappa. I was like, I'm not leaving here until I do it right. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then my first job was at Vogue, which is kind of a funny story. So tell us the story. Um, OK. So at the same time, that random house, I got a, you know, a, a, some connection. Connection. some parental connection got me, you know, a faux interview or a trial interview at Random House. Random House at the Time was owned by Advanced Publications, which also owned Condé Nast. Mm. So I went in for an interview to be an assistant book editor, and one of the skills that they asked for was typing. And so they said, "You know, see how many words you can type in a minute." And I typed seven, and none of them were spelled correctly. So this guy set, started <laughs> I feel laughing. Like that's how I started right? as yeah. a typist too. Exactly. Yeah, that sounds I, very familiar. It, I was like, "Nope, this isn't for me." And uh, that query thing—I don't know, whatever—and so. He started laughing and he was like, you know, I just don't think you're suited for this. And <laughs> this I was like, be neither <laughs> do I. Um, he was like, I'm going to call my counterpart at... HR at Comedy Nest. And let's see if I can get you in there. She was like, we're not hiring. There's absolutely nothing. Okay, fine. We'll do this interview with her. Now, this is in February of my senior year, right? I'm already looking for jobs. Mm -hmm. And yet, I haven't graduated from college yet. So I go in and I sit down and I start talking to her. And it turns out she went to Vassar, too. Oh, perfect. There you go. I I had my in. I saw it. I ran with it. And then I said at the end of the interview, you know, I think it probably would have been better if Vassar never went. co-ed and the next day she called me and said we have a job for you at both and i was like great i'm so excited graduated from college now i will say just getting back into this confidence flow of the story i did have a great deal of intellectual confidence at Mm. that point what i decided my senior year was that i needed to lose 10 pounds I wanted to lose ten pounds because I was going to go and work in fashion, no matter what it took, and I wanted to feel the part. And I and wanted to ten pounds. Was that just some, something you read in a magazine, fe- no, or something? It just felt like that. You know, I had a mom who was always preoccupied with weight. Yeah, and very I definitely, yeah, I, think, I yeah. very much inherited that, mm. and so I thought I just want to feel and look my best Mm. and I don't know whether I pulled 10 pounds out of thin air or I really just thought scale-wise that was the number Mm. but unfortunately I lost 60 and 60 I was severely anorexic oh okay I was like I didn't know if there was 60 pounds to lose oh gosh it was it was pretty brutal um my hair was falling out and my skin was green and it was very funny because I would go home and my mom would be like
0: you look great Oh, it's really, in this day and age, when you talk about people's bodies and body positivity, Mm -hmm. my sister and I talk about this all the time, that the world that we grew up in, there was nothing that was lauded as much as being skinny. Yes. And it's such an interesting thing to think back on. I think we're kind of swinging back into that now, but- Well, that's the Ozempic craze. That's the Ozempic craze, but it's also just, it's such a waste and kind of going back to what we were talking about before we got on this um, topic in the first place it's amazing how I feel like we're constantly being told to think about things that we don't think of other things. Like, why is our Mm. weight so important? Mm. Why do we care so much about that? And I know, because I'm not the same age as you, but I'm not that much younger than you. I mean, I remember someone actually saying to me, I think it was one of my bosses once, nothing will ever taste as good as skinny feels. feels." I know, it's a a terrible line. Kate Moss has been quoted as saying it.
1: A bunch of people have been quoted as saying it. And frankly, that is just... It, to me, now thinking back to that period of my life, how deeply sad, how Deeply depressed I was. How paralyzed I felt. How difficult it was to write my thesis because I was adding calories in the margins Uh of the pages, making sure that I hadn't gone over 400 that day. Like to your body that already been through so much. So much. You know. And you know, I really think about that now. As a woman, I'm going to be 54 Mm -hmm. on Thursday Mm -hmm. this week. Congratulations. And thank you. I can't believe I made it here because I think of all the things I did to torture this body, to hurt her in so many ways, and it really has taken one, I think, for me to grow up, mm-hmm. but also for to see culture change. Yes. To have worked on what not to wear with any body type. And we never, not once, Mm-mm. would ever tell anybody to lose weight because style is not based on size. No. Style is available to everyone. Yeah. And the idea that I had you know, sort of inherited this from my mom who probably got it from her mom yeah. and her mom I was like this kind of has to stop with me I yeah. want to be healthy yes but when I think about the fact that I've gone through menopause and I'm probably 15 pounds heavier than I would love to be I'm like I don't go to the gym because I'm trying to punish myself and lose 15 pounds. I go to the gym because I want to be able to walk at 85.
0: And also feel good. And your body feels feels better
1: when you're moving it. Absolutely. Absolutely. But really, for me, I will say that my relationship with midlife has also changed my relationship towards being old, like Mm. actually aging, and really understanding that this is the last time you get the opportunity to decide what you're going to do to keep your body strong, whether that's supplements or exercise or, you know, weight-bearing things that I think about physical freedom as Mm. much as I think about financial freedom and all of the things that I want as I age.
0: So let's go back to what not to wear. Yeah, just for a second. Sorry, I know that this cannot be the entire podcast, but I do want to say that I was a huge fan. Thanks so much. (laughs) I loved it. And I actually have always loved any kind of reality show where they have hosts who are specific in terms of what they think but also have a kind heart yeah. and I loved your sense of humor always I literally think about the fact that people's co-workers used to submit them and what a different know. world oh we live in like we, oh my god we
1: had one oh i mean this was a long time ago god this was a long time ago but i remember a co-workers uh in atlanta had nominated this woman and i don't think they knew her very well oh. and i think she had just arrived but they thought they were doing something nice because during their lunch break they would all watch what not to wear and she would always say oh god i wish i could be on that show i wish i could be on that show So they nominated her and we show up at this person's house, like a friend's house where they were throwing a party and she was going to be there. And we show up and we're like, hey, so-and-so, it's Stacey and Clinton from What Not to Wear. You've been nominated by your friends and family. And the look on her face, (laughs) first of all, all the blood drained out of her face. And she started crying and screaming and locked herself in a closet and said, I'm being assaulted. (laughs) I'm being (laughs) assaulted. And we were like, "Okay, what? R- we're like, leaving. We're going to just not we're actually take leave this now. This episode. And, uh, so that was a big no. Yeah. And then we heard, we, you know, we called the co workers. We were like, is there anything we can do the next day? She'd already called her parents and like, they got her U-Haul, and she left. Oh,
0: my gosh. And I felt
1: so terrible. I was like, nobody had any intention of hurting you that way. I mean, I think three people said no in our entire, you know, 12-season run. Yeah, and I feel
0: like that was never, to the viewer, like, the idea was definitely more about the person coming into their own confidence. That's actually yes. a reason that I loved it, because I'm a big believer in clothes, especially as a woman, almost as armor. I mean, you've seen yes. me on stage a million times. Yes. I've always dressed up. I've always felt like... The more confident I became, the more my clothes really showcased that. Of course. That's what I always loved about the show. Like, you would find someone who was dressed in, you know, head to toe hot pink with like unicorns in their headband at the age of 58. And you were like, I feel like we could take that color and do something different. Mm -hmm. And that, might help you feel better about yourself. And you would watch these people literally transform. They come out in that reveal. I do love a good show where people get to come out in something amazing. Well, who doesn't? It's I like know, the second coming. Fun. Until
1: until we have the second coming, all we've got is that
0: kind of transformation, yes, right? Exactly. I mean,
1: it is that uplifting. It's yeah. one of the reasons that television was such a good medium for that show. Yeah. Because it wasn't about just giving tips or rules or anything. It was really watching someone blossom. Yes. And then be able to see themselves in a way that was so different mm-hmm. from the way they came in, the way they talked about themselves. Mm-hmm. This was a huge part of my confidence because, you know, I worked at Vogue. I worked at Mademoiselle. Yes, I got more confident as a fashion editor, but I was also incredibly materialistic and maybe a little too superficial. Yeah. And by the time I got fired from Mademoiselle, I had probably been there two years too long and I needed to do something else. I wanted yeah. to do something creative. I'd never been fired so at the time, really crushed my confidence a little bit. But also looking back now, I can say with certainty, I don't want it to sound privileged, but Mm. if you have the opportunity to get fired, take it. Because it makes you reassess life in a way that leads you more to the path that you're meant to be on. Mm -hmm. One, when a door closes, it is really important to know that like now that's one less door you need to go through. Yes, And I think there's real value in that. And also just to reassess, like what makes you good at what you do? If you get fired, why did you get fired? Like I was specifically fired because a new editor in chief came into the magazine and was like, out with all of you, right? None of you sort of match my ideal. But then again, Mademoiselle closed, so there you go. So <laughs> <laughs> like I don't want to uh, say that, but it, also I'd like, like to just mention that. Thing, yeah. yeah, no, I'm um, just kidding. But it was about a year of me floating around with an agent doing very less glamorous things, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I was I was doing high sea commercials with kids. I was doing bank commercials with families and dogs and mm-hmm. like finding the right leash. I did a flooring campaign where everybody had to be, you know, in their apartment, in their bathrobes and pajamas. I mean, this was not glamorous stuff, but it was paying the bills. Yeah. But it also taught me to deal with models who are not six feet tall and 100 pounds and really look at what regular people in ads and commercials need to look like right need to what really does fit mean when you don't have like you know a hanger in front of you you know as a model what does that mean and what does it mean when you're not taking a photograph specifically for kind of a creative or artistic image. Mm-hmm. This is to sell flooring. This mm-hmm. is to sell dog food. This is to sell. So how do you really make people believable? Mm-hmm. How do you make things look good that fit right? And that was a whole other education for me. I learned to dress men and kids and all kinds of women. And for me, that was really quite incredible. So when What Not to Wear came up, like when this came to my agents and basically the description was they wanted somebody who'd worked in editorial, Mm -hmm. who'd worked with celebrities, which I had. I'd done a lot of celebrity covers and a lot of press junkets for celebrities and then who had experienced dressing real people Mm -hmm. and who could talk a lot without a script. (laughs) And I was like, oh,
0: well, you know, I mean, who else is there? You're like, hello, I would like to put my hand up for this job.
1: Um, And I thought it was funny. I was like, I didn't really understand it at the time. And then even when I got the job, I thought it's going to be 11 episodes and that'll be that. And And that first season, 12 seasons.
0: And we did over
1: 500 episodes. Amazing. It was crazy. When I walked onto that set, really, truly, the first day, I was like I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be because mm. if you, you know, think about that Steve Jobs quote, mm. you know, you connect the dots
0: backwards. Yes, absolutely. I'm Everything. such a believer in this. You're like, "Oh, this all is because It's all because the I needed right to learn yes. this. I needed in order to learn to go all of this. these things." So yes. I
1: looked back and I was like, "Now I know how to deal and dress real people. Mm-hmm. I knew how to do, you know, sort of an editorial edge. And I also had like a real understanding of basic psychology mm. around the way people feel about themselves. Everything I studied in school, everything made sense. It yeah. was like, you know, we weren't paid to be therapists, but we were. Yeah, you were. You and, definitely were. Yeah, and there was so much to learn. Even on that show, I feel like the progression of that show. I became softer. Yes, I was super snarky in the beginning. Yeah. I was told to be super snarky, but we realized that that was not the way the American version of the show was going to work, right? I said this to you before about your mom. You can get away with a lot in this country if you have a British accent. Yes. It doesn't, the kind of humor doesn't always read in, in America as an American. And so that snarkiness didn't have the same kind of funny punch to it. Yeah. And so very quickly, we realized we wanted to switch gears and we wanted to be more instructive. And the
0: compassion part of it, that happened for me over time. Yeah. And it really happened. You can see that evolution. Yeah. You can definitely see that evolution because my daughter and I watched a highlight reel of this last night. We watched like 10 episodes, like sort of highlight reels all put together. And you can really see that. In you. I mean, there's one episode where someone walks out and you just burst into tears. And it's like that would not have happened in the first season, but yeah. by season nine, you yeah. see that. And it's yeah. really your reactions and even your relationships with the people. Yes. That's what becomes so sweet about it. It's like you're not just helping them transform their clothing, you're learning about them and why they came to a place where they felt that they didn't have this they didn't have the confidence to treat themselves the way that they wanted to be treated yes. and they didn't really feel that they needed to because they didn't think anyone else believed in them. Right. So it was like this weird thing to watch, but I think you really did bring that, especially in those last those last few years. I, I appreciate that. I think also
1: really it wasn't just confidence that we were after right what mm-hmm. is at the core of confidence mm-hmm. right it's really about self worth yeah. and if you cannot find yourself worthy you're never going to be able to build your confidence you're you're sort of you know building confidence on quicksand yeah. so I've said this also many, many times, but the phrase is seeing is believing. Mm. Right. But that's actually shorthand. And seeing for fashion is like the most important sense that we can use. Mm. But seeing something and being so surprised about the way that you look makes you feel differently. Mm. Like, wow. I'm beautiful, or I'm hot, or yeah. this looks great on me, yeah. which also makes you think about how much more capable you are if you can do this, how much more you can, you can do, do in it. your life, right? Yeah. And that is what leads to belief. It is this kind of unbelievable process that we forget about. Mm. Because seeing is believing isn't actually what that process looks like. It's much bigger and much more sort of all-encompassing mm. than just the sight version of it. and. I found the more people that I loved on that show and the more people that we worked with, there were so many similarities between, I was like, oh, of course I got this show because I'm so good at being mean. Mm. I'm so good at being snarky because I am so self-critical mm. that this makes perfect sense. But the more I was able to use compassion with our you know, guests, the more self-compassion I started to have. I was like, I cannot be this kind to people who I believe have no reason to say these things to themselves that are so awful and so untrue about who they are. Yeah. Why is it okay for me to do it? Yes. And that was a very different level of confidence. Learning to become compassionate for other people, really empathizing, standing mm-hmm. in their shoes, understanding somebody else's lived experience, mm-hmm. not only made me softer, it made my it made me like myself better.
0: I love that. Yeah. Well, I love that you ended What Not to Wear. And I'm sure that there were a lot of reinventions that take place after you have become known as someone, as part of something that is such a brand and such a show and, and <laughs> such a moment, really. I know. And then I'm sure at the end, you're kind of like, okay, so what, who am I? Who is Stacy London without What Not to Wear? Well, that's exactly
1: what I asked, actually, the night before I left to go on the last episode that we were shooting. I was like, did I make a mistake? Because I had quit and originally the show was going to keep going with a different host Uh and i think that at that point at 12 seasons tlc was like "Mm, this kind of flatlining like maybe maybe we don't need to bring the show back Mm -hmm. right but i was all prepared to like have somebody else take my place and i just didn't want to do it anymore Mm -hmm. and part of that reason was because i didn't know that i had psoriatic arthritis and i didn't know how sick i was oh gosh so that was part of it but Mm -hmm. it was also like i just you know, I can do this with my eyes closed and my hands tied behind my yeah. back. It's time to figure out what comes where's next. Where's the challenge? Yeah, where's the challenge? Yeah. And it was way more challenging than I thought, if I'm being honest, because Stacy London and whatnot wear are pretty much intertwined. Yeah. And it will definitely be the thing on my gravestone. You yeah. know, I've kind of come to terms You're like, with that.
0: Nip that blazer. Exactly. Tuck in that, you know, Stacey make London. a waist and
1: pointy toe shoes. And, <laughs> I will never, ever get away from that. And mm-hmm. I'm, you know, in some ways, I'm so grateful. Like, it, mm-hmm. it really was, it was the product of a moment. And, mm-hmm. you know, to see kids going back to the 90s and the early aughts and sort of re... Spandex shorts, yes, here exactly. we go. here we go. <laughs> even rediscovering what not to wear. I went to a president's tea at my alma mater and these kids who are 18 to 22, they weren't even alive when we started the show, loved the show. Yeah, So it, streaming it was, is an amazing thing, right? Streaming is an amazing thing. What happened after was really maybe, I wouldn't say that that was an easy thing for me. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was burnt out. So that first year, I sort of probably took six months and like slept on my couch. You know, there was not a lot that I I felt like I needed to do at that moment. Mm -hmm. and, And I really wanted to like rest and kind of reset. And then I worked on a syndicated talk show Mm -hmm. that I was an executive producer of, I was one of the creators of, and it was similar to The View, The Talk, things like that. Mm -hmm. Had five people, very different ages, all different races, creeds. I mean, we had a Christian mommy stand up, Mm -hmm. You know, we had like this young millennial tech girl, like all of these wonderful things. And I thought it was such an incredible group of people. Mm -hmm. And we called the show The Find, Mm -hmm. and it was a second screen shopping show so all of us would be testing all these different things throughout the show and we had like a ticker tape of twitter and facebook behind us to ask questions amazing and we developed a second screen app that you could buy the products as you saw them it was bought but never made And that was like a year long,
0: you know, I I was
1: just so disappointed, still unclear about what to do next. I went back to TLC and they offered me to host the show Love Luster Run, Mm -hmm. which I wound up loving. I did I was like okay I'm going to do it I'm going to stay in the public eye like I should keep doing television yeah. and you know all of these things and I wound up loving the show. They let me be an executive producer on the show. I chose that crew and really got involved with every guest and I insisted that they be very young women mm. who had limited life experience so that there was really something to talk about with them mm. about how you move forward in life, right? And it was not really about rules anymore at all. Like we were very clear on what not to wear about these rules. We were really teaching geometry, yeah. right? We were we were teaching color forms to people. But in this show, it was much more about what is the difference between the way you're perceived and the way you think you're perceived? Mm-hmm. And how do we control the narrative? Because my argument is, listen, you say you don't care how you dress, you don't care how you look, you don't care what people think of you or you're like completely over the top and you want to be scary or you mm-hmm want Mm -hmm. people to think that you're like, I don't know, somehow very powerful. Mm -hmm. But the translation of those things is very different sometimes from your intended transmission. Mm -hmm. So what you're transmitting may not be what I'm translating. Mm -hmm. And how do we get those two things to meet so that A, there is actual real understanding and communication between the two of you before you've even like gotten a chance to speak. But these were people who were looking for significant others or wanted a career in a specific field. And I was like, well, then control the narrative mm-hmm. so that the three second judgment any person's brain will make when they see you, right, is about fight, flight, or freeze. Make it about why you're safe, why you're competent, why you're talented just by the way you look and then you can tell them all the wonderful things about you but it makes a difference yeah now i use the example of the suit Mm -hmm. right if you want to go and work for a very stodgy corporate bank or law firm or something like that then yes wear the pinstripe suit, Mm -hmm. right? Look the part because that's just the way that culture works. But, you know, if you are applying to be a dominatrix, wear the latex cat suit, (laughs) right? I mean, just know your audience, know your audience audience, and read the room and I think, that's not to say that personal and self-expression in fashion doesn't matter. Of mm. course it matters. But I also want people to be able to use this to their advantage. You were saying clothing for you, self-expression for you, is such a tool in your arsenal. Absolutely. For me, it's even more than that. It can deflect or reflect, yeah, right? So absolutely true. So if you are not in a good mood, right? Mm. Like me, I came in here and I was like, I had bad sushi last night and my trainer <laughs> made me do burpees and I'm, oh, 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 oh right? <laughs> But I tried to wear something cheerful because it deflects the way that I'm feeling yes. so that not everybody is asking me all day, oh, my God, are you OK? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the last you're dressed thing like an all black exactly. with no makeup, like, you're, with no makeup. Yeah, and I'm like, you exhausted. know, I didn't brush my hair or whatever yeah. it is people then are concerned or worried about you or you're getting a kind of attention that maybe you didn't plan for. they meet you where you are. Right, or it can reflect exactly how you're feeling. Wonderful and excited and strong and colorful and all of the things. So what an incredible tool not to have at your disposal. It is the easiest one. And the funny thing is I would say that when people go through life changes, certainly confidence changes, it's the first thing that they let go of but it's the easiest thing to pick back up. And the fastest,
0: especially if you have a good guide. Absolutely. Well, I want to touch on two things as we kind of come towards the end of this interview. The first being you had this incredible persona, you've had this amazing run on TV, and then in 2017, you wrote an article for The Cut. And I remember reading this because I'd always been such a fan of yours. And then I'd met you a couple of times in New York. And, you know, you're just such an energetic, bubbly person. (laughs) And you wrote this article about some really difficult, tough things that you were going through. And this was pre-COVID. This was pre the big reveal about things that were going on in our life. And you mentioned in the article that you had a spinal fusion. I had a spinal fusion after our car accident. So I know... That pain. And now I went back and reread that article mm. last night as I was sort of getting ready for this podcast. And you were hurting in 2017. I was hurting so much in 2017. I was hurting in 2016.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I kept sort of convincing myself because 2015 is when Love Luster Run ended. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, great, I'll take 2016 off mm-hmm. and there'll be like a sabbatical. And something wasn't right, right? Yeah. I started to feel it. I was doing a lot of guest hosting for The View, mm-hmm. but I wasn't feeling incredibly enthusiastic about anything. I didn't really think that I had a lot of prospects. I was losing not just a sense of identity. It was definitely about confidence. I was losing confidence and this sense of like, well, now I really don't know who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I had the surgery in 2016 and 2017. Most of 2017 was being, you know, in in a relationship that wasn't right for me. And also Recovering, right? Mm-hmm. It took me a long time and a ton of physical therapy. And I started to experience all of these weird issues after the surgery, mm-hmm. depression and anxiety being the biggest two. Mm-hmm. But, you know, heart palpitations, joint pain, things that I did not understand and that I kept thinking were, you know, attributing to this surgery. And 18 months later, I'm getting back into shape. I'm like really like trying to figure out now what I want to do. And my father gets super sick Mm. and he was already diagnosed seven years prior and they said you won't you'll be fine until you're not and then it's going to be like you fell off a cliff and that is exactly what happened and my family and i were with him from march until he passed away in november and i was with him almost every day there there was no time that we didn't realize that this was going to be Serious, but we thought that we were sort of racing against the clock to find a cure, right? There is no cure for amyloidosis of the heart. And there are some things that they think may stall its progression, but it is a very serious heart disease Mm. and one that, you know, was wild type. He wasn't even, it wasn't genetic. I mean, it was just all these weird things. It was a fluke. Mm. But losing him while I was taking care of him was very hard for me. And I started to mimic his symptoms. Like he had a heart disease, I would have heart palpitations. Mm. He would get a rash, I would get a rash. He wouldn't be able to eat some kind of food, like he couldn't keep it down. I started to have food allergies like left, right and center. And at that point, I really, when I lost my dad, I felt so lost. Mm. I was like, there's nothing left for me. I don't have anything to look forward to. I felt like an abandoned child in a shopping, you know, like mall and being mm. completely lost. I felt like I was hurtling through space. I had no purpose, I had no identity and I had no confidence. I just lost everything. And look, if you've been through losing a parent, mm. some of these words may resonate. But if you haven't, you'll know that you'll grieve, you know that you'll feel lost, but there is nothing that prepares you. Nothing, there's nothing I can say that will actually prepare you for the physical feeling. Mm -hmm. But what nobody told me, and what I had started discussing with a friend and a company in 2018, was that I was at the age of perimenopause. Nobody said boo to me about menopause. Mm. I didn't, I thought menopause happened in your 70s. Yeah. I had absolutely no idea that all of these symptoms that I was doing mental gymnastics to explain were all part of the same issue. Mm. And that my general physician did not tell me. My gynecologist told me use it or lose it. I had such bad brain fog. I thought I had Alzheimer's. My therapist was like, don't worry, you're fine. Like, I mean, all this, like, nobody's putting these things together. Right. And yeah. I thought, well, maybe I'm overreacting. Like everybody else is saying, well, maybe it's menopause. Like, it, like as if it was nothing. And I thought I was losing my mind. Yeah. I had a short fuse. I was always angry. I was deeply insecure. I almost felt agoraphobic and kind of paranoid. And this is way before COVID, right? This is like, I was um, anxious about money. I was anxious about what I was going to do for a career. And then I, I really started to lean into understanding what it was all about yeah, and it was, for me, a deep dive into the physical aspects of menopause and how to explain them medically. Mm-hmm. Not that you need to see a doctor. You can do this, you know homeopathic and naturopathically if you want to, but also the psychology, the the big feelings that surround this that do have to do with this very important kind of ignored life transition, which is about saying goodbye to your youth. There
0: is a little bit of grief involved in that. You know what's so interesting when you talk about your confidence journey and You know, everyone who has come on here, every guest that I've had has had a completely different experience with confidence. Some people have had it, they felt like their whole life. Other Mm. people never really feel it and feel like they're faking it. And what's so interesting is how many times your confidence has ebbed and flowed over the course of your life. And, you know, having watched all of this with State of Menopause, Mm, which I know, the CEO of State of Menopause now, as this conversation really becomes kind of, as someone who is in her forties, when I was pregnant, that's when the whole conversation around pregnancy yes. was really coming to the forefront. You know, My mom was always like, why did I have to wear a muumuu? And you get to wear these cool like fitted things and take all these cute pictures of yourself with a bump. Like, this is what menopause is becoming. It's like the new discussion. Yes. I mean, And
1: and in a way, I think you're absolutely right, Lydia. Like, there's two parts to that I don't want to forget. One, I think menopause is just the continuum. Yes. And it is, you know, you are younger than me, but I don't know if you're still Generation X. But regardless, I am Gen X. And I do believe that Gen X's legacy is not going to just be about really making the menopause life transition understandable and manageable mm-hmm. and not nothing to be ashamed of or afraid of that i do believe is our legacy mm-hmm. we are we are already getting there but there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of legislation and all sorts of things there's a lot of healthcare inequity when it comes to women and gender expansive folks so mm-hmm. you know we have work to do but I think the bigger legacy is that midlife, which we are talking about, midlife Mm -hmm. is really midlife now, right? You can't be middle-aged when you were dying at 70, but Mm -hmm. you're middle-aged in your 50s if you're dying at 100. And the person who is 150 has already been born, right? So this is not just about menopause. This is about a huge, radical opportunity and emancipation mm-hmm. from all of the values you held in your youth to m- morph into something completely different mm-hmm. for you to have such a joy and such kind of a full lived experience mm-hmm. at this stage of life at the same time. And this is why I wear a necklace that always says and right, because and is the most hopeful word in the English language. It also means that more than one thing can be true at a time. You can feel scared. You can feel scared about aging. You can look in the mirror and be like, "What is happening?" Mm-hmm. And Gen X certainly is the first generation that really benefited from cosmetic dermatology. So we don't even look our age, right? Yeah. J Lo
0: <laughs> does not look like a Golden Girl. It's, I will never forget J Lo at the Super Bowl at fifty, mean, swinging on. around she the She was fifty-two bowl, or fifty-two, and they 51, kept putting her next to the pictures of, of the Clanahan from uh, the Golden Girls, exactly, and her, with her hair perfectly set and how exciting to have all of this to look forward to and that this conversation continues to move forward because of people like you, well, thank you. But you know what I really wanted to say, sorry, I know we're probably running out of no, time, no, no.
1: is that you were saying that my confidence has ebbed and flowed, yeah. and it has. It really has. But there is no time in my life where I haven't been able to glean or learn mm-hmm. something from whatever stage I've been in. Yeah. I will say this is the hardest stage, right? Yeah. I mean... 45 to 55, Scientific American did a study. It's the highest rate of decreased earning potential mm-hmm. divorce and depression for women. And I don't think that's by accident.
0: Great. If you, no, <laughs> like, no, 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 we'll no. Moving into that soon, no. so I'm just I gonna, think it's going to change yeah. because
1: the thing is, it's like a Mack truck is coming towards you. Yeah. And if nobody tells you to get out of the way, you're you going to get know. hit. Right. Yeah. But if you know, you're going to get out of the way and you're going to have a completely different path to look forward to. Yes. That's what I am hoping to leave yeah. as a legacy. I mean, seriously, for, for younger generations. But I also believe that this kind of ebb and flow of confidence, I kind of describe it as inverse narcissism, mm. right? I don't think I'm a full-blown narcissist, but I certainly feel like I got some of those tendencies, and I think all of us do. But for me, it was inverse narcissism in that my insecurity was what I was usually focusing on, not my confidence, <laughs> yeah. right? But but there is something to this idea that if you lean into your life in probably the more hard times, if you really lean into that hardship, it is the way to get through. There is no other way.
0: There is no other way. Well, I'm gonna stop it there because honestly, I can't think of a better way to end it, Stacey. Thank you for your candor. Thank you for this incredible conversation. Thank you for being so honest and transparent. It's been such a pleasure to sit across from you today. I wanna thank, to thank- you for having me. I wanna ask you, where can we find you now? Tell us everything. Okay, well, I can't tell you everything. Okay, it, <laughs> never mind. tell us what you coming, can tell us.
1: Cause it's coming, but what I can tell you is please follow me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Mm-hmm. I'm mostly on Instagram, I would say. Do a lot of Instagram Lives right now with companies that I think you should know about for midlife, not okay. just menopause. Whether they are great new practices in exercise or nutrition or mm-hmm. all sorts of things. I'm doing that to be really as open as I can be, as mm-hmm. to show you what your options are so that you can feel educated around any choices that you make mm-hmm. at this age. But I am. Launching a sub stack very oh, soon. Okay. Um, and then I would say there are probably two, three other projects that will be out in 2024. So
0: I'm I'm busy. So, are we following along on Instagram to find these? Yes. Okay. So I would say Instagram. At Stacy London. Yes, At Stacy London. Okay. We will be following along. Oh no! Wait. Is it? It's at Stacy London.
1: Real. At Stacy London. And real. The only way I. The only reason I say that is because at Stacy London belongs to another lovely lady, but who was very upset with me that I said real, and I was like, I, I was just trying to be like, you know, haha, like I should have said official, right? And she was like, Well, I'm just as real as you, and I was like, I probably more. <laughs> the world that we live in
0: is such a curious. world. Place, it, is a, isn't it? it is a weird place. There's I mean, social media. I, know. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how to manage it at all. I know. Well, thank you again for being here. Thank you. I would love to thank Newsstand Studios, hey. Joe, the amazing producer who keeps everything on track and everything in line. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. And I want to leave you with one thought to Stacey's necklace and... What does the AND stand for in your life? What's your next move? What's your next chapter? DM us. Let us know what you're up to. We're always excited and rooting for you on the other side. As I said earlier, I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence from Newsstand Studios in Rockefeller Plaza. Have a wonderful week, and I can't wait for you to tune in next week.